All right, good morning. Welcome here to church this morning. I want to give a shout out to whoever picked those songs. Good grief. <laughs> really good worship. And uh, I, I just felt as I've spent uh, time in Psalm 110 over this week, that it was very appropriate. A lot of stuff that we sang actually tied in really well. Um, and just good to worship the Lord anyway. Uh, we as the New Testament church take the place of the ancient people of Israel in our time, standing before God in His sanctuary and giving adoration and worth to Him because He is worthy. Amen? Uh, and we look forward to the day when we will do that in His presence uh, properly, and we all look forward to that. All right, let's go ahead and we're going to open with a word of prayer, and then we're going to spend some time in the Scripture. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we love You. We are glad to be here in Your presence this morning with Your people filled with your spirit, looking at your word. And Lord, I, I do pray this morning as we speak from a passage here in Scripture that is very important, that you will give light, you will give understanding, you will give application to us. Help me to say what you want me to say and not to say what you don't want me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Jared read the passage of Scripture today. Uh, we're in our series on Psalms, so we chose to do Psalm 110 this morning. Um, I'm going to do something a little different with Psalm 110. We are going to spend time going through the passage, but first, uh, some other things. Uh, psalm 110 is kind of an important psalm in the book of Psalms. It's one of the more important psalms, number one, because it's a messianic psalm. How many know what a messianic psalm is? Psalm that points to Jesus, the Messiah, right? There's several of them, uh, a, a fair list there. Psalm 110 is, is one of them. Uh, the reason I chose to speak on Psalm 110 is that it is quoted more times than any other psalm in the New Testament. There's about 14 references to this psalm in your New Testament. Uh, chances are, if you've read the New Testament, you're recognizing some of the language we read today, the Lord said to my Lord, and I make you a priest like Melchizedek, that kind of stuff. And so what I wanted to do today was go through and explain what's happening in Psalm 10 so that when you read your New Testament, you're like, oh, I get it. I understand what's going on there. Because uh, as a kid, for me, this psalm was kind of confusing, and when Jesus quoted it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me and stuff. So I want to go through it and give a decent understanding so we get what's going on and why it's so important. Now, um, one thing that I find very fascinating is there are ties from Psalm, 1, Psalm 110 to the beginning of the human story in the book of Genesis, and there are ties all the way through Scripture to the ending of the human story in Revelation uh, where we go into the kingdom with Jesus. So what we're going to do to set the stage for Psalm 110 today is we're going to go back to the beginning of the story we're going to walk through a few things from the Old Testament such that when we get to Psalm 110, a lot of things will be clicking, making sense. Then we're going to beeline for the New Testament and talk about how Jesus fulfilled and kind of wrap it up that way, okay? So we're going to kind of do a whirlwind through the Bible today, if you will. Hopefully that's all right. And for you Bible school folk, introduction for you, okay? Because we're going to get there. All right. Wonderful. So uh, the writers of the New Testament quote Psalm 110 a lot, so we're going to, we're going to spend time in it today. Now, to go to the beginning of our story, we have to talk about creation. We have to talk about original purpose, right? God creates the human race, man and woman, and He creates them to have dominion over the works of God's hands. God creates the humans to be His little king and queen, under God, of course, over the created order. You ever think about that? We as humans were created to rule. We were created to be king and queen under the great king. God is the, God is the absolute sovereign, but under him, God, God created a, a system of vice kingship, vice regency, right? There's these people, they're like God, they bear his image, they, they, they are like him in some way, and they're created to have dominion. How did the people do with their dominion? 
Not so good. By the time you get to Genesis 3, we have the people deciding to serve a created thing rather than the Creator. We hand our authority to the serpent, you know. We give our crown to him, as it were. And Satan becomes, as Corinthians says, the god of this world. Sad. We give our crown away. Someone else is in charge. Oh, God's still in charge, but down here we have somebody else running around ruling the show. And we see that today in our world, to this day. Another thing that happens is we become needy of someone to bring us back to God. We become needy of a middleman, a mediator, a priest, somebody who can come and bring us back in connection with God because we've lost that. So we gave our crowns away. We become needy of connection with God through a priest. Now, God was not happy with the scenario. I, I often think about this, how God could have reacted. God could have said, okay, see you guys later. I'll, I'll make a new world. We'll start over again, you know. God didn't do that. God says, I'm going to fix what you broke. So God decides he's going to enact a rescue plan for the human race to bring them back to kingship like they should be, to bring them back in communication with God. And he starts with a man named Abraham. God starts with a man named Abraham, and in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great family, and from the family will come a great nation, and through your nation, Abraham, I will bless the entire world, every people group. My intention is to get them all back through your family somehow. And Abraham's like, yes, sir, you do what you want, God. Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago. Uh, I trust you, right? And Abraham turns to God in faith. I don't think the man understood nearly what God was going to do entirely. But there's this promise, right? I'm going to save the world, bless the world through your family. So Israel, as a nation, is created to be like a light in the midst of darkness. If you look at where Abraham was in the story of Scripture, we've just finished the Tower of Babel. The nations are scattered. The languages are split, worshiping demonic gods all over the planet. Hardly any worshipers of the true God left at all, right? And then there's Abraham and his family starts off. Now, uh, something that is alluded to in Psalm 110 here is an incident from uh, Genesis chapter 14. Slight context, and then we'll keep moving forward. I'm going to keep this light. Genesis 14, Abraham's family, some of his family members are stolen by a group of, of uh, kings who rip through the area, and they attack this city, a bunch of cities, and they take a bunch of people captive. Abraham's got some family in there, Lot, his nephew, right? So Abraham and his household servants, they get their weapons on, they chase after the kings, they beat them in battle, they bring all the people and all the spoil back to give it back to whoever owns it and bring the people back to their homes. As Abraham is coming back with all these people and all this treasure, he passes by the ancient city of Jerusalem. Okay, Now, then, at that, in those days, it wasn't called Jerusalem. It was called just Salem, which means peace. Okay, City of peace, peaceful city, whatever. And out of the city of Jerusalem comes this man. His name is Melchizedek. You know him from your Old Testament. Melchizedek is the king of Salem king of ancient Jerusalem before the Jews got it, and he is called the priest of the Most High God. Priest of Most High God and the king of Jerusalem. Fascinating. Man's name means king of righteousness, okay? Interesting character. He comes out, and Abraham bows to Melchizedek, basically, and, and treats him as though he is better than Abraham. Abraham gives a tenth of all the treasure he got to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek, like the greater, blesses Abraham, says, God be with you, sort of thing, Okay? Now, all we're going to do with Melchizedek at this point is just, we're just putting, that, putting that out there. There's this interaction between the first Jew and Melchizedek. We have that. Uh, one thing, the one thing I want you to notice is that this man is king and priest at the same time. He serves sort of a double role, priest of God most high and the king. Kind of fascinating, right? Cryptic and interesting and fascinating. All right, so we go through the story. 
Abraham, through a miracle, and his wife have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel. Israel moves to Egypt during a time of famine, goes into slavery. Uh, 400 years later, we have the Pharaoh is enacting a program of genocide to kill the Jewish nation off. It's satanic. He wants to get rid of them. And God sends Moses. Moses comes in with acts of divine power and completely destroys Egypt. Ten plagues come down. It kills the livestock. It, it wrecks the crops. You know, the weather is changed. The Nile is changed. Like everything they worshipped and cared about was destroyed, right? And Pharaoh hardens his heart against God and ends up just wrecking the place. God brings the Jews out of Egypt through a great act of power, through the, the shedding of blood at the Passover and the opening of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh's army, brings them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai. So here you have nation of Israel, right? This is their birth kind of as a nation. God stands them up in front of Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, probably a passage you should be aware of. Exodus 19 is important because it's right before Exodus 20 where the, the law is given. And God says, here's what's happening. I'm going to make you people, Israel, my kingdom of priests. There's a couple of themes in there we've already been picking on a little bit. There's a kingdom theme and there's a priest theme. That's fascinating. God says, I'm going to make you, Israel, my kingdom. God is coming back to set up his kingdom again, and he starts with the nation of Israel, and he says, you're a kingdom of what? A kingdom of priests. What's a priest? A priest is a middleman, a mediator, a go-between. See how God is reaching out to the nations? God wants all the nations to come back to him. How are they going to do that? They got to have a middleman. They got to have somebody who knows God to begin with who can bring them to God and show them who he is. So God says, you guys, Israel, you're it. You're my kingdom of priests. Now, there's a problem with Israel being a kingdom of priests. What's the problem? Genesis, or Exodus chapter 32, right? Israel needs priests themselves. Israel is sinful themselves, right? The, the, what I referred to there with 32 is them dancing around the, the, the uh, golden calf that they made right after the law was given, okay? Israel is sinful as well. So what does God do? Within the nation of Israel, the kingdom of priests, God sets up a tent of meeting with an altar and a priest, actually a whole bunch of them, right, who will make offerings to God for the sin of the people. So there is a, a place, a sanctuary, a place where heaven and earth meet, a place where there is a connection with God, a place where there are people who know God and can bring you to God for the entire world and for the nation of Israel as well, right? And that we have the, the tabernacle, the wilderness tent there, and then we have eventually the temple that's set up by uh, King David and King Solomon, especially in later years. So we have that. <clears throat> now, we have to go to the story of David. David is Israel's king at the time. Uh, this psalm is written, actually. Um, but there's an interaction we have to look at with David and God before this psalm is written. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, little known passage, but actually quite important for the rest of the Bible and the New Testament as well. 2 Samuel chapter 7. All right, here's the scenario. 2 Samuel 7, David decides he wants to make a temple for God. He says, hey, it's not fair. I've got a beautiful palace on Mount Zion. We have the tent of meeting next door with the ark in it, but that's not right. God needs a special sanctuary building for him. So David has these elaborate plans to make the temple, which is kind of fascinating, right? Solomon eventually built what David planned. It's kind of David's temple in a sense. God says, David, I like your heart, but you're not the one to build the temple, you know, for a number of reasons. You've shed a lot of blood etc. Your son will be a man of peace. I'll have him do it kind of deal. 
Uh, but in the middle of, of talking with David about the temple plans and what God is going to do, God says this, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, When your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you, your son, right, who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. There you go, Solomon. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You underline that word forever. God is going to establish David and Solomon's house as the king uh, family, the dynasty ruling going forth into eternity. That's interesting, right? Look at the next one. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. David's son, Solomon, and the kings that come after him are going to wear a label. They're going to be called God's son. Did you realize that? The Davidic kings going forward were known as the sons of God. Oh, they're David's son, but they're in a special way. They're kind of God's son too. That's fascinating. Now let's turn, actually, one more verse, I forgot. Verse 16, uh, just to wrap it up. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So an eternal dynasty for the kingdom of David and the Davidic kings are called God's son. All right, now we're going to go to Psalm 110. Enough background. Psalm 110, we're going to read through and we're going to give some comments along the way and then we're going to turn to uh, things heading toward the New Testament. Now, Psalm 110, as it says in our Bibles, is written by David. It says a Psalm of David. Um, And many scholars that I have read uh, feel that this Psalm is a coronation Psalm or an enthronement Psalm. What we mean by that is probably, in all likelihood, whenever a new Davidic king came to the throne, this psalm would have been read or sung probably by someone as they were being crowned. Okay, This is God's promise to the new Davidic king who sits on the throne. Every time we get a new one, we read Psalm 110 sort of as a welcome to the kingship kind of thing. Okay, So keep that in mind as we read. New Davidic king is being blessed here by God. Here we go, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, something we've got to notice right off the very beginning is the word Lord. Look in your Bible uh, at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. I want you to notice the way, the, the, the font that you have in your Bible for the first edition of the word Lord there. It says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Look at the next word Lord. It's only capital L and then small, small O-R-D. Do you realize what's happening here? Okay? In a, most of our English Bibles, in most of our standard translations, whenever we have the word LORD in the Old Testament in all caps, what they are doing is the translators are letting us know something. The word we are translating here as LORD is a special word. It's the word Yahweh, which is the covenant personal name of God that He gave to Moses in ancient Israel. Every time you see LORD in all caps, that's what we have going on here. So the LORD, God, says to my LORD, This one's different, different font. What's happening here? Who is this Lord that God is speaking to? In all likelihood, in the original context, this is speaking toward the Davidic king who's sitting on the throne. So the Lord says to the new king, my Lord. Okay, the Lord speaks to the king. And I think as we go through the psalm, you'll see it's God speaking to the new king. Keep reading. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, we got to look at a couple things here. Sit at my right hand. What does that mean? In ancient culture... To sit on the right hand, the right side of the king, was the place of honor. If you sit at the right hand of the king, you are the the next most important person in the room besides him. Okay? God says to the Davidic king, pull up your throne next to mine. Sit next to me. Place of honor. 
Now, something that's fascinating and fantastic is this. David, when he built his palace, he built it on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the mountain in the center of the city of Jerusalem. It's still there. I don't know if they call it Zion or not, but it's the Temple Mount, okay, that area. David built his palace up there, and right next door, there's the, the tent of meeting with the, the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember the story when David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem the first time? The man is so excited he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's dancing before the Lord with all his might, and some people are like, you're crazy, what's wrong with you? Why is David excited? God and me are going to rule together. I get him next to me. David pitches the, the holy tent with the Ark of the Covenant next to his palace. We have done archaeology, we meaning modern people in our time, right? We know where Solomon's temple was. We found the foundations of the thing. We have also found the foundations of Solomon's ancient palace. Do you know where it is? It's on the right side of the temple. Temple faces east. Solomon's temple faces east. Solomon is directly to the right of God. God says, son of mine, sit at my right hand. Solomon says, yes, sir. David says, yes, sir. We put our temple, our, our, our palace right next door. The temple in ancient Hebrew culture was known as the place of God's throne, right? God sits in heaven and His feet are down on earth. There's a connection between heaven and earth at the temple. God's throne is, it's like God's throne is here. God rules from Zion, from the temple, and right next door is the Davidic king. Tandem rule. I rule with him, he rules with me. Sit at my right hand, says God to the king, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's going on here? Okay. Making the enemies a footstool comes from an ancient practice. After a battle in which an enemy was destroyed, the winner, the victor, would go and place his neck, his, his foot rather, on the neck of a downed enemy. See this in the book of Joshua a couple of times, right? God says, Davidic king, who's going to sit on the throne, I'm going to bring your enemies and put them under your feet like your footstool. You're going to put your foot on them. You're going to win, in other words. It's a promise of ultimate victory for this new king that's being enthroned. Verse 2, the Lord will stretch out your song, strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Okay, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, this is God, will stretch out the scepter of this king from Zion. Now, what is a scepter? A scepter is a ruler's staff or rod that symbolizes authority. You see it in the old pictures, right? A king sitting on a throne with a crown and usually some kind of like a mace or a scepter, or a, you know, a rod or a, or a staff there. That's what that is. Uh, so, the Lord is going to stretch out the strong scepter, the strong rod of rulership of this king from Zion. Where's Zion? Hill in the center of Jerusalem. This is where your kingdom will be. God will stretch out your rule from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So this king is going to rule even though enemies are around him. He's going to be in charge of them all type of thing. He will rule over the enemy nations. Verse 3, your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Okay, verse 3 is all about the followers of the king. Uh, it talks about the day of your power, the day of the king's power. When the day of the king's power comes... When the day of the king's victory comes, he will have many people stand up to volunteer their services to him. Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power. Uh, the next section is, is kind of a cryptic or poetic language. In holy splendor from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. I read some commentators on this, and here's how I understand it at this point. The idea is that when the king comes to power, when he has his victory, it will be like a brand new beginning, 
and his volunteers will appear like everywhere like the dew. You guys know what it's like on a, on a summer morning. You, you, you get up just a little bit before the sun if you do that type of thing and you look out and the whole ground is covered. Little droplets. Where did they come from? They just appeared. They're everywhere. Millions of them, right? When this king comes to power, his people will volunteer freely and there'll be millions of them. They'll be everywhere. Okay? Your youth will be to you like dew. Your young volunteers, they'll stand up and they'll be everywhere. That's kind of the idea as I understand it. Verse 4, this is important. The Lord, there it is again, capital L-O-R-D, has sworn and will not change his mind. Hey, listen up for a sec. When God swears something, when God makes a promise with an oath, it's kind of important, yeah? God says, I swear, you know, by my, by my great name or whatever, I'm going to do such and such. Like, we, we pay attention. Uh, he says it kind of double here. He says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So God's not going to back up on this one. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. What's he swearing? He's swearing to the king. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So glad we read our Old Testament. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is interesting. This victorious king will also be a priest. Now, hold up for a sec. In the Old Testament Jewish system, the role of king and the role of priest did not mix. We actually had some kings that got in trouble for trying to intrude into the priest's office. We had King Saul who tried to offer an offering. He wasn't supposed to do that. Got in trouble with God for it. King Uzziah wanders into the temple one day to offer some incense and ends up being made a leper for the rest of his life. There are priests and there are kings. And kings are kings and priests are priests. And you don't mix the roles. That's, that's important to God. However, in this story here, it says, in this chapter here, it says, God is going to make this king a priest forever like Melchizedek. So the roles are going to join here somehow. They're going to join forever, and it's like Melchizedek. Why bring in Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is the only other previously known priest king in Scripture, to my knowledge. This guy is a one-off. He's an anomaly. He's different, right? He's a king and a priest of God at the same time. God is going to make this Davidic king to be a priest as well as a king. Cool. More on that in a few minutes. Verse 5 and 6, more on the king's winning over enemies here. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Now, verse 5 uses the word Lord, uh, but it's not all caps, so it's not Yahweh. Uh, it's actually the word Adonai, which is a word that is used in Scripture only ever for God. So don't, don't assume this is the king here. This is the Lord. This is God. It's just using another name for him, okay? Uh, so God is at your right hand. Now, who are we talking to? Who, whose right hand is God going to be at? Who is God going to be next to to help him to do his thing? Well, it's the king. God is speaking to the king. The Lord, I will be at the right hand of the king. In other words, I'll be right next to you. I'll be helping you. I will be your right-hand man kind of thing. He, the Lord, will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. What's going on here? This is a deep theme throughout the Old Testament. There is something called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets is a day of judgment upon the world. This is something that has not happened yet. Our world is cruising toward it at lightning speed. We are going to get to a time in human history where God will come down and judge the godless nations. God will come down and judge the world for its sin, and the wicked who have turned from God and thrown God aside are going to get what's coming to them. That's called the day of the Lord, a day of judgment. The book of Revelation talks about it. We'll get into it in a few minutes, a little bit more. But in the day of God's wrath... God at the right hand of his king is going to shatter kings. Okay, there are going to be enemy kings that are going to go down under the feet of God's king. Verse 6, 
He, God, will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Okay? The result of the judgment of God judging the nations is piles of corpses. Leaders over a broad area are going to be shattered and destroyed. Okay? It's, it's awful sounding, but this is what's going to happen. God's going to stand at the right hand of the Davidic king as he comes in to do this. God will use him to beat his enemies. Verse 7, He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. Now, this verse is a little confusing. Uh, for one, who is it referring to? And for two, what does it mean? Okay, He will drink from the brook by the wayside. And when I look back at verse 5 and verse 6, the he's in those verses are all God. God will drink by the brook from the wayside. That's interesting. How does that work? Uh, and then I thought, I wonder if what's happening here is it switched the referent a little bit and, and it's actually referring to the king who comes down at God's right hand, you know, to destroy the enemies. Uh, drinking from the brook by the wayside, what does that mean? A couple of commentaries I read think that the picture here is of the victorious Davidic king after he wins this great battle over all his enemies, stooping to drink from a, river, from a, from a roadside brook and then being refreshed after the battle. More on that in a minute too. Okay, So we've got this Davidic king who comes in. He's promised victory over his enemies. God says, you're going to be my priest forever. You will win over all. You'll be refreshed from the brook, by the way. There's Psalm 110. Okay? Now, is everything completely clear? Great, we can all go home. We've got to go to the New Testament. If we don't go to the New Testament, we are missing like half the story. On the way to the New Testament, though, we have to talk about one more little thing. How did the Davidic kings do, you guys? I mean, in terms of, you know, being God's light to the world, leading the nation to praise of God and bringing the nations in to, to worship Him. Uh, some of them did pretty good, you know. A few of the Israelite kings worshipped God and led people to worship God too. But you know your story. You read the Old Testament. Most of them didn't love God. Most of them worshipped false gods, demonic uh, entities, uh, brought idols into God's temple. By the time we get 500 years from the writing of this psalm, God sends in the nation of Babylon to smash Israel, smash Jerusalem, smash the temple, smash the people, destroy everything, take them all off into captivity and kill them. Wreckage. Why? Well, people turned away from God, right? The Davidic king thing didn't really turn out too well, at least not in human terms. So Israel goes off into captivity for 70 years in Babylon, but that's not the end of the story, right? God says He's going to bring them back. So 70 years later, Persia takes over Babylon, the conquering enemy. Persia says, Jews, you may go home, build your temple, have your land. So we have the Jews moving back after the exile, 70 years in Babylon. They come back to build their families, build their nation, build their temple. Uh, we're going to open our Bibles next to Zechariah chapter 6. I'm going to be here really briefly, and then it's New Testament time, okay? So hang on with me. Zechariah chapter 6. Now, what's happening in the book of Zechariah is this is post-exile. Jews are coming home. Temple is being built. As Zechariah is being written, actually, the temple is under construction. Okay, they're building it. They're setting it back up again. What's happening is there are exiles from the nation of Babylon who are filtering back to the nation of Israel. They hear the temple project's going. They want to come be part of it. And so you have Jews from the exile in Babylon coming and bringing gifts for the beautification of the new temple. Zechariah is there. Zechariah, uh, Zechariah, by the way, is the third last book of your Old Testament. So if you go to Malachi or Malachi there and back up three, that's where it is. Malachi, as you know, is the Italian prophet. I'm messing with you. Malachi, I think they say it. Okay, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. 
Zechariah speaks, The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, verse 10, Take an offering from the exiles, and then he names the guys who come. And you shall go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. So go and receive this gift from these guys who've come from Babylon. Take the gift. Now verse 11. Also take silver and gold. Make an ornate crown of the silver and gold, right? Probably from the offering money that they brought. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Hold up. What's going on here? Zechariah is supposed to take gold and silver from the exiles, make a cool crown out of it, and place it on the head of who? The high priest. Who's Joshua or whatever, the son of Jehozadak? Some of your Bibles call him Jeshua. It doesn't really matter. Joshua, Jeshua. Who is this guy? This guy is the high priest of the returned remnant. As they've come back from Babylon, they know who their priests are, the line of Levi. They've been there the whole time. They get the next one up. They put him in place as the high priest. He's going to officiate in the new temple. God says to Zechariah, make a crown and put it on the head. Crown the priest. Why are we doing that? That's not done. Remember, kings are, cre- kings, are kings and priests are priests. We don't mix those roles. Yeah, well, God says we're going to mix them. Put the crown on, on uh, Joshua's head and then say to him, verse 12, the Lord of armies says this, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the majesty and sit and rule upon his throne. So he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. In other words, the two roles will get along in one person. That's interesting. He will be a priest on his throne. We don't mix the roles. That's not the way God says, yeah, I'm going to mix them. There's a prophecy going on here, a deep prophecy, right, of something in the future where there will be a priest who is also a king. Hey, we've seen that before, haven't we? Psalm 110 and the Melchizedek thing. Fascinating. All right, now, let's move forward to the New Testament. This is where it gets exciting because it hasn't been exciting yet. Tickle in my throat every once in a while here. Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. All right, we know the story of Jesus. Jesus is born. Uh, The gospel tells us that Jesus is born by miraculous conception in Mary from God. Right? Jesus is no ordinary human. Jesus is a virgin-born human with God as his Father. We know that. Uh, Whose family line is Jesus born into? Jesus is born into David's family line, the kingly line, actually. Mary comes from the line of the kings. Mary comes from David's family. And incidentally, Joseph, the adopted father who had nothing to do with the pregnancy, uh, is from David's line as well. Okay, so you kind of got a lot of David going on here. All right? Jesus is born into the line of David. Jesus grows up and is marked out by God as special right from the beginning. Remember when Jesus goes under the waters of baptism before he starts his ministry? He comes out of the water and God shouts from heaven, This is my son. I love him. He's the best. Remember that guy? And then people are like, Whoa, what happened there? God spoke from heaven right like that one right there. That's my boy. Okay? You go forward in the story, you have the... the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up on the mountain and all of a sudden he's changed into brilliant glory like he was in heaven before he was born on earth, right? And the disciples are falling down, they don't know what to do, and God's voice speaks from heaven and says, this is my son, listen to him. Remember that? God's marking Jesus out as his son. Interesting. Why are we using the word son? Back to 2 Samuel, right? God's going to have someone who's called his son, 
Davidic king who's the son. That's interesting. God's marking him out as special. Uh, Jesus heals sick people. Jesus walks into a village and stands there and heals everybody in the village like all day long healing people. That's all we're doing. Heal everybody like there's no sickness that's too big. Jesus makes food for crowds from a kid's lunch. We can just make a bunch of food for people, solve the food problem. Jesus tells the storm to be quiet and the storm has to be quiet. Uh, Jesus walks on the water. Evidently, the laws of nature don't apply to Jesus. Jesus tells the demons to leave people and the demons leave. Jesus has power over the spirit world. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus has power over death. Jesus is in charge of everything. Who is Jesus? (laughs) Jesus asked that question to some people one time. Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. Who is Jesus? Matthew 22, 41 Now when the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Okay, we've got to stop for a minute and define some terms. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? What is the word Christ? We we use it a lot in our language today like it's Jesus' last name, but that's not what it is. It's a title, okay? The word Christ means the anointed one. The anointed one. The Jewish people who read their Bible, our Old Testament, knew that God had promised that he would have a son of David who would come and sit on David's throne and rule from David's throne forever, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We read it. There were lots of other passages in the Old Testament that talked about this as well. The people of Jesus' time referred to this coming Davidic son king as the anointed one. Why did they do that? Because kings were anointed. When they they put them on the throne, put the crown on their head, we pour oil over their head, they anoint them as a special ceremony inducting them into the kingship. And sometimes kings were not only anointed with oil, they were anointed with God's Spirit. God would give them His Holy Spirit to live in them for life as they ruled like King David. Okay, So anointing anyway, the anointed one became a a word we used about the king. And for the Jews in Jesus' time who don't have their own king, they're being ruled by Rome, they are desperately waiting for the anointed one to stand up. We want God to bring the anointed one, the Old Testament promise of the Davidic forever dynasty. We want that. Jesus says to the Jews of his day, who is the Christ? Whose son is he? Uh, Just a a short note here too, there's a Hebrew word for Christ, it's the word Mashiach, which means the anointed one as well. We know it as Messiah in English. Jesus asked the religious leaders, whose son is the anointed one prophesied in the Bible? They reply, David's son, of course. Everybody knows that. The anointed one comes from David, 2 Samuel 7. Jesus answers them straight out of Psalm 110, verse 43. Jesus, he said to them, then how does David in the Spirit, or David speaking by the Holy Spirit in the Psalms, right, call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If he's David's son, then why does David call him Lord? And it says that the Pharisees were confused and they stopped asking him questions. Now, when I was a kid, I read my Bible, right? I was raised in a Christian home, given a Bible. I read this passage many times and I was always confused. I knew that Jesus had done something really clever, because you could see what happened. They shut up. They didn't ask him any, any, more, any more questions. Right? I knew there was something clever going on. It was like, what is it? You know. And I knew that he'd put them in their place somehow, but I didn't know how. Right? It didn't make a lot of sense. So I want to untangle what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, hey, the anointed one that, that is prophesied in Scripture is coming. Whose son is he? Oh, David's son, of course. Jesus is like, hey, listen, if he's David's son, then why would David, back in the Psalms, say, the Lord said to my Lord? Why use the word Lord for his own kid? That's weird, 
right? You're talking about a human here, so why not say, you know, God, the God uh, uh, up in heaven said to my son? That would make more sense. Why, Jesus says, does David call his own son Lord? Like, that's too much. Isn't that a funny thing to say for a human? Here's the thing. Here's the thing, and this is important, I think. There is more to the coming anointed king than just the son of David. There is more to the coming anointed king than just the son of David. The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one was son of David to be sure, but he's more than that, isn't he? Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4 say that Jesus is not only the son of David, which is important, he is also the son of who? Son of God, right? We have a divine human being in the same body. Incarnation, virgin birth. Now, how can you get a son of God from a son of David? How does that work? You have to have a woman from the family of David and God as the father. That's the only way. Now he can be son of David and son of God at the same time. Isn't that cool? Hidden right there in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, we have the virgin birth. We have the incarnation of the God-man coming down here for us. No wonder the Jewish leaders didn't know what to say. (laughs) The ultimate Davidic king would also be the Lord himself. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, but he is the Lord. He is God at the same time. So the Lord in heaven can speak to someone else who is also called Lord, David's son. Fascinating. Hey, how well did the Jews receive Jesus' claim to kingship? Not good, right? Some of them got it. Most of them didn't. You end up with this instance in Matthew chapter 26. We won't go to it where Jesus is arrested. He stood up in front of the high priest who's Caiaphas at the time. Caiaphas says to Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Say it. What are they trying to do? They're trying to burn Jesus, right? Get him to commit the ultimate crime of blasphemy or whatever. Uh, Are you the Christ? Jesus says, you said it. In other words, you got that right, right? How does Caiaphas react? Blasphemy, tears his clothes, you know, put him on the cross, kill him. That's what they do. They take him outside the city, reject him, hang him up, kill him, leave him out there to die. That's what we do with blasphemers. We're staying human history in one sense. Humans reject the great king that God had sent to save us all from Satan's power. Satan thought he'd won. What does God do with his sons? He raises them from the dead. That's what God does with his sons, starting with son number one. There's more in that. (laughs) Starting with son number one, God raises his son from the dead. Jesus comes back three days later as proof of the fact that he is indeed king over everything, even death. Satan and death can't hold Jesus down. Jesus comes right back up. Death could not hold him, as Acts said. Jesus promises to come back, ascends to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is in heaven, and Scripture says he sits where? At the right hand of God. The Davidic king is sitting enthroned up there right beside God, most important man in the room besides God himself, with a promise to come back. Jesus is the king. Okay, we've dealt with the king thing a little bit. Jesus is ultimately the king. Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews now. Jesus is more than king. Hebrews chapter 6, a little background in the book of Hebrews real quick. <clears throat> book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians who are being tempted by persecution to renounce their faith in Jesus and return to Judaism. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> That's the gist of Hebrews, okay? Jewish Christians being, being tempted to leave Jesus and go to, go to Judaism the author, 
possibly Paul, writes like a sermon in a letter format and says, hey guys, Jesus is the center of God's program. Like leaving him would be disaster. That would be the last thing you want. It would be disobedience against God actually. Don't leave Jesus. Jesus is everything. That's the point of Hebrews. Jesus is the best. Okay? In a nutshell, that's Hebrews. Now, along the way, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, the author says this, middle of the verse, it says, Jesus has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here we go, priests. Here we go, Melchizedek again. Jesus has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's quoting Psalm 110. Did you hear that? Jesus is not just the promised king to beat our enemy. Jesus is also the promised high priest. And the roles mix in Jesus. Jesus is priest and Jesus is king. One person, one man, two roles. Hebrews uses Psalm 110 several times to make this point. I'm not going to read you the passages. I'm going to give you the gist just verbally here, okay? Is that all right? Here's the gist. The author says Jesus is the priest forever, like Melchizedek. And then he, he, he writes a little, a little question in the, in, the, in the chapter so you can follow, like, hey, if somebody had a question about this, here's what they'd say. So he says, Jesus is the high priest forever, and then someone stands up and says, wait a sec, how can Jesus be priest? Jesus ain't from the right tribe. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah, where the kings come from, by the way. Where are the priests from? Levi. Jesus from the wrong tribe. He can't be a priest. He can't be a high priest. He's from the wrong tribe. That's not even right. Remember, kings are kings and priests are priests. Well, says the author of Hebrews, Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's not an Aaron type of priest from the line of Levi. He's kind of more like Melchizedek. Remember that guy who wasn't even a Jew who was a king and a priest at the same time? Oh, yeah. God can do that, I guess, right? Yeah, I guess God can do that. <laughs> Another little opposition. Hey, the priests in the temple offer prescribed lamb offerings every day several times for the sin of the people. What could Jesus possibly have to offer not even being a normal priest? Oh, says the author of Hebrews, Jesus is a different kind of priest. Jesus went into the eternal temple before God and offered his own body and his own blood for the sin of the world. Last lamb sacrifice ever. Mic drop. <laughs> right? Final priest. Final sacrifice. Jesus is the best priest ever. Jesus is different. And it's interesting, in the book of Hebrews, what we discussed back in Matthew about the cross being the worst day in human history where humanity uh, rejected God's king, Hebrews flips it and says, on the other hand, the cross is the best day in human history so far. Why? Because the sin problem of the world has been settled for once and for all. Christ came, died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose again to beat death. The cross is the center. This is the gospel that we're talking about here. Best day in human history for those of us who come to Christ, right? Jesus took care of our sin for once and for all. Do you see how Jesus is the center of everything? We humans were created by God to rule, and we gave it away to the serpent. We need someone to come and beat the serpent and give our crowns back and rule with us, don't we? And rule over us. We allowed sin to come in the way and cloud our relationship with God, separate us from Him. We need a priest to come and bring us back. And Jesus is the king to beat the enemy, and Jesus is the priest to bring us back into relationship with God. Jesus did that. Jesus did all of that. The Word centers around Him. Last passage, I promise, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. 
little context on Revelation. What is happening as we open this passage is the end game of human rebellion against God. This is a future thing that has not happened yet, okay? The world is going to head into deeper and darker rebellion against God, rejecting God, rejecting His Son, the Lord Jesus, and eventually things are going to get so bad that God is going to do the plagues of Egypt part two. That's my way of putting the Great Tribulation, okay? In the book of Revelation, if you read it, there are a series of plagues that are unleashed upon planet earth to get the attention of people to say, hey, God is God, Christ is real, you need to turn to Him before it's too late, right? That's what's happening here. People don't turn to God. They want their sin more, they want their demonic gods more, they want their stuff more, whatever, their pride more. And so eventually we reach a point where the plagues run their, run their, their course and we have this event here. What we are describing here to tie it in with the Old Testament is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, capital D, okay? This is the big final judgment, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. I remember talking with a language helper of mine when we were on the field in Russia. I was talking to him about Scripture and telling him that this was one of my favorite passages in here about the victory of of Christ. And he says, Dave, he says, think about all the people who are going to die. This is an awful day. This is sad. This is bad. And I said, I agree with you, but look at the verse. In righteousness he judges and wages war. Guys, this is going to be a righteous war. This will be right. He'll do it right. It's time. God's been waiting for a long time, right? In righteousness he judges and wages war. Verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. He sees everything. On his head are many crowns. Hey, not just one crown, you guys. You got them all stacked up on his head. Who is Jesus? (laughs) You tell me. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. The robe dipped in blood is probably the blood of his enemies. Uh, Isaiah 63 says that. His name is the Word of God. Don't miss it. That's John language for Jesus. Book of John. 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Uh, I'm going to insert the word volunteers in here. The king comes with some people who are on his team. Earlier in the chapter, it talks about the church. Saved people who are clothed in the righteous deeds. Righteous deeds of the saints. That's the white linen. They come on the horses with him. Are they there to fight? No, they are not. Jesus does all the fighting. We're just there to be spectators. We're there to join him in his victory and join him in his rule. Fantastic. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, This is Psalm 110 language. We have the crushing of the enemies. We have the ruling with an iron rod. That's a scepter, by the way. Okay. Rule over the nations with the iron rod, strict rule. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Winepress language, we have to talk about that. What's a winepress? A winepress is a great big cement box. And back in ancient times, people would collect a whole pile of grapes and put them in there and squish them with their feet. And out of the bottom would run grape juice that we can make wine out of. That's what a winepress is. It's a squisher for grapes. Jesus is coming down on the horse to tread the winepress of God's wrath. What's going to happen? Revelation and Isaiah talk about this as well. The evil nations, the evil people who have turned away from God get thrown into the wine press and Jesus comes down and crushes all the grapes. It's frightening, right? Psalm 110, he's going to shatter the enemies, shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. There's going to be some bloodshed. 
Scary. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in midheaven, Come assemble yourselves for the feast of the great God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and commanders, of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, small and great. Verse 19, I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, the world leader at the time, Revelation talks about him, and the, armies, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. What a stupid idea. Uh, yeah, we're going to make war against that. Uh, verse 20, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet, another character from Revelation, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword of, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is a vivid description of what was given to us in two verses in Psalm 110. The coming down, shatter the enemies, bringing his volunteers with him. Turn now to the next verse, 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the devil, the dragon rather, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, uh, named four different times, just in case you're wondering who we're talking about here, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed him over so he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Okay, Satan and his minions bound for a thousand years. Verse 4, this is important. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Who's the them? Next verse, next word. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Who's going to reign with Jesus? Guys, it's the volunteers who came down on the horses with him. It's the dead saints who've been martyred for their faith. It's every persecuted believer. It's every believer since the dawn of time. Come back and rule and reign with him. Remember I said you walk out on your porch early in the morning and you see all this dew. It appeared everywhere. There's millions of them. Where did it come from? That's what people are going to say when Jesus' people reappear. When the dead saints and the living saints are brought back, brought alive, and brought together, they're going to be all over the place. Where did all these people come from? And what are they there to do? They're there to rule and reign with Christ for that thousand-year period. Fantastic. He's got his volunteers with him, just like Psalm 110. It's going to be a complete reversal of the world order, you guys. Remember I said we need someone to beat our enemy and give our crowns back? Yeah, Jesus does that. One more thing. We have uh, in Zechariah chapter 14, which is a parallel passage of, uh, of Revelation 19. We won't read it. It's, it's lengthy and it's detailed as well. Saying a lot of the same things. When the king comes down and destroys the enemies... There is a spring that is opened in Jerusalem of living water that heads out across the earth and heals the land. The curse is undone. Remember the last verse of Psalm 110 about the king stooping to drink from the brook by the way and being refreshed? It's probably what it's talking about here. Living water flowing out of Jerusalem and healing the whole world. Now, a note for those of you who read your Bibles a lot. 
This is something, this event, verses, uh, verse 1 to verse 7 of chapter 20 is known as the millennial kingdom. This is known as the thousand-year reign of Christ. You read as I was reading that Satan will be bound for a thousand years and then he gets let out for a little bit and we're like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Satan gets to come back out. You hang on. He does. For a short bit, he gets let out for what? To be destroyed. Read the rest of chapter 20 sometime, okay? I don't know why God does this, but this is what he does. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ with his people. Satan gets let out at the end. God smokes him. And then verse 20, chapter 21 and 22 describe a new heaven and a new earth where there's righteousness, peace, no sin, no pain, no sickness, no death, and we are forever with him, reigning with him. Okay? That's the end of the story. Guys, we have taken a whirlwind trip through Scripture, pulling some things together, and hopefully making some sense of Psalm 110 along the way. Can we talk application just for a minute before we all scatter for lunch? Let's do that. Three points. I'll be quick. <laughs> Every time we have communion, we read a passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, gave it to them, and said, right, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this, remember me, etc. We read that passage. In the middle of the, of the Corinthians passage on communion, there is a very significant statement about our place in the story of Scripture. We've talked about creation. We've talked about fall. We've talked about Israel. We've talked about Jesus coming to redeem. And we've sort of sped ahead to the end game, which is the consummation of all things. Where are we? We're in a period of time called the time of proclamation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim something. What do we proclaim? We proclaim the Lord's death. What are we here to do in our day to day? We are here to proclaim the death of Jesus on the cross as the satisfactory payment for the sins of the world. That is our job. That's what we're here to proclaim. Who are we here to proclaim it to? Those who don't know it. Those who don't believe it. Those who don't want it. Because Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for them too, didn't he? We are here to proclaim the Lord's death. Those who trust him will have their sins forgiven and be given eternal life like we have. That's our job in the present age, to point to the cross. Number two. 1 Corinthians 11 says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. That's the context of our proclamation. We don't get to proclaim forever. We proclaim for a period of time until what? He comes. When Jesus comes, proclamation time is done. It's kingdom time. When Jesus comes, we move the storyline forward. We have a window of time to proclaim the cross. We proclaim the Lord's death until we, He comes. You know what that means? We also proclaim. I think this is completely legit according to Scripture. We proclaim the kingdom to the lost as well. In other words, it's good for you to say, Jesus loves you, died for your sins, you can trust in him and have eternal life. Would it also be good to say, and Jesus is coming back and you don't have a whole lot of time? Would it be good to, to talk about the coming of the kingdom? That there's a new world coming and I'm part of it and you can join me. Extend the hand. Offer them the possibility of putting their faith in Jesus and joining what we're part of. Absolutely. I think it's very important actually. The world in our day has written off the return of Christ as a myth. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about that. People are going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Ah, it's not going to happen. He's been so long, you know? But Jesus will appear in person just like we read here and do all the things that we just read about. 
Guys, that's, that's awesome for me. Lord, I get tears in my eyes thinking about the man on the horse. There's a bad side to that thing too, right? What about all the other people, you know? I was sitting in a big public event last night looking at all the people and just think, wow, like a lot of people here probably don't know Jesus, you know? What's that going to be like for them when Jesus shows up? Not a good time, right? So we proclaim the Lord's death, but there's a context for that. We are running out of time. Time is ticking. And then number three, last one. In the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, there's a scene in heaven. In the scene in heaven, just like we sang on the slide here a few minutes ago, there's rainbows and flashes of lightning and thunder, and in the center of the whole thing is a glorious throne, and God is sitting there, and next to Him, on His right hand, by the way, is His Son, called the Lamb, and all creation, everybody, is circled around worshiping Him. And there's a scene in chapter 4 there where there's these people sitting close to the throne. They're on thrones as well. There's some, somebody else doing some reigning there. And they've got crowns on. Near as I can tell, that's probably the church, the volunteers, the people who joined Jesus and came back to reign with Him. There they are with their crowns sitting around the throne. Hey, what are they doing with their crowns? Oh, yeah. We're taking them off and we're putting them in front of Him. <laughs> Guys, if I get a crown, that's where it's going. Amen? I don't deserve to wear that thing in the first place. It's for Him. He does the ruling and the reigning. Why do they take the crowns off? It says they sing a song to him and they say, you are worthy to reign because you were slain and by your blood you redeemed people for God from every people, tongue, tribe, nation, language, whatever. All the glory goes to him. Hey, that's the end game of humanity. We will stand there and say those words and take our crowns off and worship him. That's what it's about. But I think we have lost something of worship in our day today. Why is it so cool when we stand up here and we worship Christ in church? It's like water for a parched soul after a whole week of non-worship, you know? Oh, I want to get back and do worship again with my people in the church. Guys, isn't, isn't our life every day supposed to be a day of worship? Right? And it's not just singing, it's what we do, it's how we serve, it's everything is for Him. Like, I've got a crown to give Him, what have I got? Man, i got everything, anything I can give Jesus. It's for Him, it's all for you right? Jesus is the one who redeemed me. My life should be about Him. What can I give Him today? It's like Mary breaking the ointment open and pouring it on Jesus' feet. What have you got? Worship Him. Worship Him with your life, and then come and continue on Sunday, right? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for being the king to beat our enemy and being our priest to bring us back. You've done well, really well. And Father, we know there's a future coming for us who know you. We rejoice in that. We ask that we would live as worthy participants in those events now. Give us wisdom to do that in our day. Give us wisdom with the lost. Give us wisdom with our neighbors and friends who do not know Christ to carefully and accurately present the truth. And I pray your spirit would work and people would be drawn to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand for a benediction. May the rest of our lives, as we live them in obedience to Christ, be an act of surrendering ourselves to Him as daily worship. Go in God's grace.